Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction Podcast Number Six, the award-winning short story *Big Gene*, read by the author. Following the teachings of nonviolence by Dr. Martin Luther King, a low-down blues piano player befriends a white farmer of the Ku Klux Klan at a truck stop gig in Maryland. His activism saves lives, but destroys his family. I'm Bill Coles, your host, so let's get started. Big Gene by William H. Coles In the 70s, In rural Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C., the Black Mountain Boys, an all-white band, had a regular gig at this all-white truck stop and hired Big Gene, a black piano player, who had an 11-inch thumb-to-pinky stretch that whacked out tents like octaves. Big Gene played boogie like Pete Johnson and could walk down into infinity of R&B with a left hand transplanted from Professor Longhair and James Booker. Sid, the fiddle player band manager, saw Big Gene as a savior for the diminishing popularity of his country repertoire. Hey, play the book, he said to Gene, but make it sound like they want to shake their booty. On Big Gene's first night, the truck stop manager approached Sid as they were setting up. Who the fuck is that? the manager said to Sid. Big Gene did not look up. Piano player, Sid said. Hey, we don't hire no coloreds. You hired us, he plays the piano. He ain't playing my piano. I didn't know you played piano. Don't smart-ass me. He's got his own, one of them electric things. Never heard of a black guy could play country. He was born in a horse barn after his mama finished a cattle drive, Sid said, trying to suppress a smile. The owner crossed his arms and watched them for a few seconds. Any trouble and you're out of here, he finally said and walked away. All of you. They faced the piano to the wall and Gene played his keyboard. When he sat on his fortified piano bench, he anchored more than a few gazes at 6'2 and 374 pounds. Now, Big Gene had no love for country music. For him, it was like chopping firewood. And he didn't like playing for angry whites. He liked the white guys in the band who cared more about work and family than race. But they were different from the clientele who seemed deprived of everything and angry at all they'd been denied. At the first break, the drummer came over to Big Gene. Shit, man, you could really play that thing, he said, nodding to the keyboard. Folks seem to like it, Big Gene said. You been in town long, the drummer asked. About a year. Not much work, though. Tell me about it, man, the drummer said. I've been looking for a better gig. Jump ship in a heartbeat. Sid seems solid, Gene said. Sid's the best. I hope this crossover works for him. I don't think I can live through another stand-by-my-man, the drummer said. The way we play it, I could take a piss between the ones. Gene felt relief getting away after the first night. The place was hell, never closing. And at any time of day or night, there'd be 20 to 40 rigs pulled in on diagonals on the three-plus acres of dirt parking, diesels running on the refrigerated loads, some guys sleeping in the cabs, others running a rag over a radiator chrome strip on a Peterbilt. The air was eerie thick, impending doom like a war zone, and without exception, inside every rig, some serious weapon hid within easy reach. Big Gene got home after 1 a.m. Chlorad awaited up, 
sitting in front of a TV that hadn't been turned on. We gotta talk, Eugene, Cloretta said. It's after twelve. You got children. It's a steady job, Clory. Big Jean lowered himself into an overstuffed armchair. It's disgraceful, she said, her voice quivering. That's what everyone at church thinks. Big Jean stayed quiet. White trash, she blurted out, and it's no reputation for a man of God to be chasing after. It's just music, making people happy, Jean said. He loved his Cloretta. Exhausted, he glanced away. If you got to play piano, play gospel, her voice had turned angry. I can't make a living in the church, Glory. Well, I can't be teaching school forever. It takes too much out of me. Big Gene took his wife's hand and pulled her to standing. I've been thinking, I'm going to sell tapes. I got a guy who will do it for a percentage of sales. You're dreaming, she said. He hugged her so there wasn't much of her showing. There's a lot of people making big money in my music now. They ain't making it at no all-white truck stop. We'll be looking for sales in music stores, too, he said. She pulled back so he could see her face. Just don't be selling your soul. I can't tolerate that, Eugene. The truck stop was the only nightlife with live music for 50 miles, and it was the only place a lot of locals went to get out of the house in the evenings. Most customers were guys. A few brought wives or sweethearts, but not many. Most of the unescorted girls were walking the line out of a trailer park about a mile away. When you finished your business, you could clean up, too, behind the gas station and weekly lit fuel pumps. Management had erected a prefab shed where you could shower for half a buck with a dry towel while you got your driver's license back when you handed the towel back to the attendant and a one-inch cut from a bar of soap. The restaurant was a concrete block building that had been built as a warehouse. It had grill counter service on one side and a kitchen specializing in spare ribs barbecued, half a chicken fried, and meatloaf with pan gravy and potatoes. White waitresses in short skirts carried four or five plates of food without spilling to bear for top tables. In the back was a long bar, a tiled dance floor, and the raised platform for the band. After a few weeks, Jean began to play solid boogie solo piano during the breaks. Soon regulars timed their thirst to hear Big Jean, and the manager booked the Black Mountain Boys for another three months and called Big Jean Sid's pot of gold. A tall white guy with sun-baked leather skin and a Braves baseball cap came regular on Thursdays to sit on an end bar stool. He was close enough for Big Jean to hear when he laid out for Sid's solos. One night, the leathery guy said to the guy sitting next to him, Hey, that nigger's good. He played like Jerry Lee Lewis. Big Gene overcame his urge to look. Then the guy yelled to Big Gene, Hey, man, you know great balls of fire? Big Gene grinned. You know I love it, he said. But he played the fat man. Big Gene came off the stand and approached. The man looked puzzled. I mean it, boy. You great, the man said with an edgy smile. Uh, thank you, sir, Big Gene said. You ought to learn great balls of fire. I was telling the man here, you flat ass sound like Jerry Lee Lewis. Big Gene waited. The leathery man stared. Uh, Mr. Lewis learned from us coloreds, Big Gene said. You shitting me, man. The man looked genuinely surprised. Yes, sir. Mr. Lewis learned from some of the greats, like we all do. God damn, the man said. Yes, sir, it's God's truth, Big Gene said, smiling. 
As Big Gene climbed back on the stage to start the next set, Sid whispered to him, What was all that about? That redneck thought I took my plan from Jerry Lee Lewis. I was correcting his misperceptions. I'm surprised he didn't shoot you. I was a little shocked, too, Big Gene said, grinning. After a few weeks, during a break, Big Gene rolled out his version of Great Balls of Fire. He played it on the house piano. The leathery guy stood up and yelled, I mean, that was the flat-out best I ever heard. He waved a power fist in the air to Big Gene. What you drink? The leathery guy said to Gene from his bar stool. He only drink cranberry juice, the bartender said. Big Gene started playing. The leathery guy put two bucks on the counter. On me, he said. He walked to the piano. The bartender carried a water glass half full of cranberry juice and put it down at the side of Big Gene without comment. And when he finished, the leathery man stepped up to him. How you drink cranberry juice and still play like that? You're like high as the moon. The leathery guy sipped beer from a bottle. Big Gene drank his juice, still sitting on the piano stool as the owner, always dressed in a gray suit with a no-tie, shiny black shirt buttoned to the neck, came up to Big Gene and took the glass of cranberry juice from him and placed it on the floor behind the piano. The leathery guy stiffened. Hey, Howard, you got a problem? The help can't drink with customers, the owner said. It's cranberry juice, Howard. Besides, he's the piano player. He ain't just help. The owner hesitated as he weighed what was offending a good customer and how it could hurt business to have some guy drinking with the colors. We got rules, Parker. You got no rules against cranberry juice. Uh, don't make it a regular, you hear me? The owner said. He shook his head and walked off. Big Gene stood. The leathery guy picked up Big Gene's glass again and handed it to him. He was eye level with Big Gene now. Name's Parker Smith. I'm a carpenter. I do custom cabinets mostly, finished and stuff. But with hard times, I've been doing on-site construction a lot this last year. I tell you, man, I don't like it. But I do it to keep food on the table. You know what I'm saying? I hear you, Big Gene said. You got children? Parker asked, leaning his elbow on the top of the piano. I got a boy 11 and a girl 8, Big Gene said. I got seven kids, same wife. The click of hard-heeled boots pounding the floor tiles came toward them sounding weird like trouble, and Big Gene looked to Parker, who held his gaze for a few seconds. It was a guy past his best years, his jeans low on his belly and held together with a tool leather belt and a brass buckle cast in the shape of a big rig cab coming at you. Hey, Parker, you talking up with the colored... No, ma'am, Parker said. This is Jerry Lee Lewis. He ain't no colored. He look colored. He's a fucking piano player. The belt guy never once looked at Big Gene. It don't be looking good, Parker. You got your responsibilities. You got to be careful what people think in these days. He walked away. Parker had his head down. He didn't speak for many seconds. Don't pay him no mind, he said to Big Gene. He's clan. Big Gene felt a muscle twitch in his face. He thinks because I'm clan he's got rights, Parker said. Big Gene couldn't speak at first. Really? You a wizard? Gene finally asked hesitantly. Shit, no. Don't get bent wrong. Big Gene was as tight as a high-end piano wire. Don't ride your clutch, my man, Parker said. We ain't against all coloreds. 
That isn't the rumor, Big Gene said. Parker looked straight at Gene, then looked away. Hey, that ain't you, man. You regular. Thank you, Gene said, but the words didn't come easy. Claretta heard from a woman at church that Gene was talking to a clansman at the truck stop. It isn't right, she said to Gene one night when they were in bed, neither able to sleep. It can make a difference, Gene said. You aren't Dr. King, she said. It's arrogant to be thinking that way. Big Gene had thought out what he wanted to tell her. He's afraid, Glory, deep down. I'm like a moccasin or something. But now he begins to see me like a garden snake that has no teeth and no poison, and that I'm working, snaking around, just like him to stay alive. There isn't much fear left in you after you pick up your first garden snake who doesn't care about hurting you. Probably doesn't see much difference between you and a tree stump. Might even appreciate you're not stepping on him. Crazy talk, Clarita said and turned her back to him. He stared at the ceiling. He believed Dr. King would take these opportunities and peace would come one man at a time, not by going to war. The next evening, Clarita greeted him when she got home after school. I'm sorry about last night, Eugene. It's okay, Clory, Jean said. Clarita said, it's just that I don't see why you're making up to him. Big Jean didn't say anything for a while. He loves his wife, he said to her. She had started washing the dishes at the kitchen sink, and I love you. You're too smooth for your own good, she said over her shoulder. Big Jean didn't see Parker much in the summer. Parker had a plot of land he leased to plant soy, and with tending his crop and making his cabinets, he was pretty tired at night. But on a late summer night after harvest, he came by the truck stop after 12. He parked. The band had finished locking up their stuff, and Big Gene walked out of the building alone and saw three black guys beating up on a guy behind a red pickup. Big Gene squinted. It was Parker. A skinny kid with a razor ripped Parker's shirt and sliced his chest and now was starting on his thighs. Behind him there was a taller kid holding a shiv like he was waiting to jam it through Parker's ribs into his heart. Big Gene got the shiv kid just as he began to move, grabbed him by his shiv arm with his right hand, and squeezed until the shiv fell. Then Big Gene grabbed the kid's crotch with his left hand, and he picked up the shiv kid off the ground and held him so his feet didn't touch the earth. What the fuck? The razor kid said, backing off. Big Gene shook the shiv kid and threw him to the ground. He clan, bro, the razor kid said. No killing, Gene said. Big Gene took the razor from the kid and picked up the shiv from where it had fallen. He'd hang you from a fucking tree, said the kid holding Parker. The kid let Parker go and Parker slumped down. He'd lost a bucket of blood. Cutting a man is not the way to overcome, Gene said. You one weird motherfucker, the kid said as the three backed away, turned and ran. Big Gene picked Parker up and carried him toward the restaurant. You're going to make it, he said to Parker who was barely conscious. A photo flash went off and blinded Gene as he came close to the door. The manager had brought out a folding chair and Big Gene set Parker down. A few minutes later, when the emergency van turned into the parking lot with lights flashing to pick up Parker, Big Gene slipped into the darkness to get into his car. The next day, Big Gene saw a photo of Parker Smith being carried from an assault for treatment that was on the front page of the local paper like it was something no one would expect a Negro to do. 
Parker's chest carried scars, but his legs healed better. He rarely came to hear Big Gene play anymore, until one Thursday night in the spring. Big Gene came off the bandstand after the first set to say hello. Parker had never mentioned anything about his assault to Gene, and he didn't say anything about it that night either. He said his son Harry was in juvenile. It was a big worry for him. The Black Mountain boys began to straggle back in from the break. Big Gene turned to go back on stage. I was wondering, Parker said, if you'd play a reception at my daughter's wedding. I can ask Sid, Gene said. No, man, just you. Big Gene stared at Parker, whose lips were tight. The brow creased with apprehension. Sure, Big Gene said. And bring your wife. I'd be proud to have her, Parker said. I'll ask, but I don't think she'll come, Gene said. Women like weddings. Her mother died waiting for treatment at a hospital. She's bitter. Thinks her mother would be alive if she were white. Hey, sweet talker, man. Big Gene put on his tuxedo for the wedding. Cloretta sat on the bed in a rope and watched as he dressed. You asking for trouble, she said. At a wedding? There'll be hate there, Eugene. That man's friends have killed the likes of us. I'm sorry you're not going. I'd like you to meet Parker. When hell freezes, she said. Big Jean sat near the back of the church. The bride had a scrub glow to her skin, her eyes avoiding the crowd. At the reception, Parker introduced Big Jean to friends. This is the man that saved my ass, Parker said to a man in a light blue suit and his wife who wore blue shoes trying to match his suit with four-inch heels and a white satin short dress. Uh, Pleased to meet you, Big Jean said. The man barely reached Jean's shoulder. The man reached out his hand, and Big Jean took it. Any friend of Parker's is a friend of mine, Big Jean said. The wedding photographer snapped pictures. The organist for the ceremony played the piano for the bride and groom's first dance, but after that, Jean played out the time, and the people danced. Two days later in the morning, before Cloretta went to school, she held up the Sunday paper to show the black-and-white picture of Big Jean shaking hands with a man in the blue suit. She read the caption. Clan reaches out. It's not right, Cloretta said. He doesn't look dangerous, Big Jean said and smiled. Cloretta frowned. They're calling you a civil rights activist. You shouldn't be shaking his hand. You should have whooped his butt. The next afternoon, a man from the National Urban League came to the house to arrange a live interview in Washington the next week. Cloretta was waiting when Jean got home from the TV station. What did you think, he asked. That man didn't let you talk enough. Weren't you just a little bit impressed? You're too full of yourself, she said. He held her tightly until she relaxed a little. She was always tense these days. More than a year passed. Big Gene was selling his own tapes at gigs and at music stores in D.C. Claret had changed schools for a higher-paying job in administration. Daughter Cheryl was beginning to look at colleges and had visited the University of Maryland. Son Hal was on a basketball team at school and hoped to be a starter. On a Tuesday night, a 30-foot cross burned on a knoll behind Claretta's and Big Gene's AME church. It toppled onto the church school, which burned to the ground. In the middle of the night, Cloretta wept. Big Jean turned on the nightlight and got up. He brought iced tea to her from the kitchen. At least the sanctuary wasn't damaged, he said. The school is important. He put the iced tea on the floor next to the bed 
I don't want that, she said. He picked up the iced tea glass and put it on the dresser. What's up, baby, he said. Don't you baby me. He got back in bed and didn't touch her. She stopped her crying, wiping her eyes with the edge of the sheet. I can't stand it anymore. The church has insurance, Jean said. And we'll rebuild and be burned and someone will die and we'll rebuild again and no one will ever be punished. There's an outrage, Big Jean began. There will never be a white man jailed or hung for crimes against us. It takes time, Clory. I think we're making progress. In the name of God, Eugene, Clorida said, where's the fight in you? You're not the man I married. There had been a time when Eugene had used his size to assault men, but he wouldn't do that anymore. It's your friend, she said. He did it. That's not fair, Clory. I don't think he did this. You don't think he was involved? At least knew about it? Gene didn't know Parker's activities with the Klan, really. You're blind, Eugene. They're running over you. Big Gene paused. We'll win, Clory, but not with hate and anger. That defeats us. She didn't respond. The depth of her silence hurt him when he said, I love you, and she turned away. Months later, new construction had been started on the church school. Big Gene was home from work with Clorette on the porch. A cardboard box had been dropped off at the front door. Did they say what it was? Big Gene said. I didn't see who delivered it. Big Gene picked it up. It wasn't heavy. He listened. There was no sound. Throw it out, Clorette said, fearing it was a bomb. Gene stripped off the tape and opened the flaps. White satin gleamed. He pulled out a full-length robe, unadorned except for a patch with a white cross and a red background. From the bottom, he pulled out a pointed hood with two eye slits. It's a threat, Clora said. They're going to hurt us. He's left the clan, Corey. She stuffed the robe back into the box. Don't let anyone see it. Jean picked up the box and took it back into the guest room. Cloretta followed. He took a hanger from the closet. Don't, she said. It means a lot to me, Clory. On the hanger, the robe was so long it gathered on the floor. In the name of God, Jean, I don't want that in the closet. It's a symbol of hope. That's crazy talk. I can't stand it. Big Jean reached into the closet. I'll store it in the shed, he said. Dear Jesus, she said, leave it in the closet. It's you I don't want, not the robe. By the middle of the next decade, Big Gene had finished playing music professionally. He owned a real estate business. Parker Smith died on the job, broke his neck when he fell backward off a second-floor balcony at a home site under construction. Big Gene still lived in the same house. In his guest room closet, he had seven clan robes from former members he'd gotten to know through Parker, robes he showed to visitors, most of whom acted as if Big Gene's mind had shrunk from too many years of loud music. Cloretta never forgave him, and after the divorce, she took the kids and moved in with her sister in Minnesota. Later, Big Jean married a secretary whom he had met at church. She had marched with Dr. King, a Miss Melanie Harper. In 1978, by popular demand, Big Jean ran for Congress. This story and more than 35 others can be enjoyed free online, as well as five novels at storyandliterayfiction.com. 
a website dedicated to providing resources for fiction writers, resources that include essays, interviews, a blog, a newsletter, a workshop and tutorial, and much, much more. Hey, thanks for listening, and goodbye. This podcast is a production of StoryAndLiteraryFiction.com.